Okay, so grab your Bibles. Um, let's get into our study for this morning. Um, we're going to be digging into Jonah chapter 4 and finishing this really short series that we um, have been doing called The Runaway Prophet. And I'm super excited to be able to finish a short series. It's kind of nice. I was talking with some people in the church this last week about how um, cool it is to do short little series because you get through them um, in a short amount of time, but it feels like you really you went through a whole book of the Bible. If you've been with us um, from the beginning of these, you've gone all the way through, and you still can if you didn't if you miss a, a message or you want to go through the series again. Remember, all of these are archived on YouTube, and you can find them there. As we look at our text for this morning, here in Jonah chapter four, the prior chapter is just this amazing success story of Jonah going to this pagan city and seeing something happen that we all wish would happen in our cities today. And that's unified repentance. You know, as a whole, this city turns to God and had the book of Jonah ended at chapter three, Jonah could be known as one of the greatest prophets of the Bible. If you think about it, um, because I can't think of any other prophets. I mean, there's, there's some great accolades for sure that prophets um, accomplished through the power of God throughout the Old Testament. But Jonah led a pagan city, Nineveh, and if you know much about the Assyrians, you know how brutal and harsh they were. Jonah, through his message, empowered by God, leads this entire city to repentance. And so if Jonah chapter 3 was like the ending, you'd be like, wow, what a redemption story. What a success story. Jonah is such a stud. Here's the problem with that. First of all, my reaction, you'd be like, I wouldn't have said Jonah was a stud. Well, I would. But the problem with that is, is that my focus would have been on Jonah. And it wouldn't have been true. It wouldn't have been true to what actually happened. And here's something um, that we need to bear in mind. First of all, this is God's victory. This is God's accomplishment in the lives of the, the Ninevites. This is God accomplishing something powerful and great for his name. This is not Jonah's accomplishment. Jonah is being used by God to do this. And we have to view ourselves in the same way. But I think that we learn something about the Bible when we look at Jonah chapter 4. If God's concern in the provision of Holy Scripture was to give us this group of human role models that we could become like, chapter 4 would have been omitted. If he was like, here's some human examples that you want to follow after, that you want to be like, then chapter four wouldn't have been included because if you follow Jonah's example, he, he's a pretty big brat in chapter four. Like Jonah is a punk. He's a kid that you would discipline, you know, and God lovingly is going to walk him through this, but you don't want to model your life after Jonah any more than you don't want to model your life after someone like Moses or David. The whole point of scripture is that you want your life to look like Jesus. You want your life to be conformed to the image of Christ. The whole point of being an image bearer is not that you're not a, you are not an image bearer of a human being. You are an image bearer of God. And so the point of scripture is to show us in truth, in actuality, both the accomplishments, but also the failure of mankind over and again. Scripture tells not just of victories, but of failure as well on the part of human beings. And I think that we need to remember that and learn that lesson. That we are called to become like Christ, not like other people. God's concern is not just for the people of Nineveh. His concern is also for Jonah. 
And in order for us to see Jonah truly be faced in his issues, we have to see the truth about where his heart was throughout this. The truth has to be told about him and about how God dealt with him. And it's vital that we learn from Jonah's victories, and it's just as vital that we learn from his failure. And so we need to see this all together in one place. We don't have in the Holy Word of God a, a, a bunch of writing that basically paints people as heroes and then paints other people as villains. It shows human beings and mankind as fallen, and it shows God as the cure. That's what scripture teaches, that Jesus is the cure for our sin sickness. And so we don't want to become like Jonah, but we want to recognize that in Jonah's life, we see parts of ourselves. We've seen victories. We've seen failure. And here's something that we learn, that we're loved by God, but we don't want to be used in spite of ourselves. I never want to be used in spite of my attitude. I don't want God to be like, okay, I'm going to work through you, but you've got an attitude problem. I want to be a willing vessel. I want to be moldable clay. And so we're loved by God, but we don't want to be used in spite of our attitudes and placed under the discipline by the Lord because we're acting like spoiled children rather than living out our lives as men and women of God. That's who we want to be. We want to be mature believers. Part of that maturity process is having our faults called out, having these things dealt with. God looks on our hearts and he weighs our motives. And it's the heart and motivation of Jonah that takes the stage in chapter four. Because if we had ended at chapter three, victory would have been great. You know, you had a little parade, the end. And, and, you know, I was talking with a very dear couple that I'm close to this last week about how we love closure right? We love closure. Well, Jonah doesn't really end with closure and it bothers me. It really bothers me. I'm not going to lie to you. Some parts of scripture really bother me. I'll read it and be like, why? Why couldn't, I mean, we won't even get, I'm spoiler. We won't even get a, rea a reaction from Jonah to God's closing statement of this chapter. And I like closure, but God leaves it open-ended for a reason. Because we are living out the story of our own that's part of his story. We're playing a role in his story. How will ours end? How will we respond to God? It's this very poetic ending of, so if God says this to you, how will you respond? What will you say? What will you do? It kind of takes the situation it puts it in our lap and says, this is for you to deal with. What are you going to do? You going to honor God? You going to try and glorify yourself? So let's look at Jonah chapter four, and we'll, we'll let all this kind of come out of the text and, and we'll unpack it as we go. So Jonah chapter four, beginning in verse one, we'll read the first three verses here. and We'll just kind of work our way through it. So remember the context is the city repents. If you look at chapter three or chapter three, verse 10, God saw the actions of the Ninevites. They turned from their evil ways. God relents from the disaster he threatened them with. He did not do it. We see this amazing picture of grace and Jonah chapter four, verse one hits us. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Not the reaction you'd expect from a prophet of God. Not what I would expect if I'd never read the story before. Like, wait, what? Shouldn't he be stoked? Like, God just worked. He just did what, what you would want him to do. Show grace. Uh, we'll, we'll unpack that more. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me. 
for it's better for me to die than to live. This is a twist. This is a switch in the, in the direction of this story, like I said, that you would not expect unless you already knew it was coming. The source of Jonah's displeasure was God's mercy. The source of Jonah's anger was God's graciousness. This upset him. I was joking with my kids this morning as I was reading the first verse of this passage, just going it over, over and over again in my mind. And I was like, guys, here's a great Bible verse to memorize. Jonah 4.1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Like, no one's like, oh yeah, bro, I know that you're struggling right now. Let me just speak over you, Jonah 4.1. No one's going to do that. No, it's like, that's not a positive verse. Am I going to be remembered in scripture? I want to be remembered for that. You know, like God works powerfully and shows grace and I just get all mad about it and I go off and pout, you know, that's not something I want to be remembered for. God's mercy for Nineveh is what he hates. He hates God's graciousness for these people. Now I want to be, I want to be really clear here. He doesn't hate that graciousness and that mercy for himself. He wants that for himself, but he doesn't want it for them because of you know, you could look and go, well, if you look at the, you know, the Assyrians, I mean, they were horrible people. Oh yeah, we can justify all day why we feel the way we do. But when God shows grace and mercy, how do you justify your feelings then? How do you justify the way you feel about people and your frustration with people when God has chosen to give them grace and mercy? When God has chosen to bless them and forgive them. Often for ourselves, we, we want that grace and that mercy but it's crazy to me how when God shows it to somebody else, we get frustrated. We get irritated. No, God, you're supposed to punish them and bless me. And I know none of you have ever felt like that before. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> I struggle with that. And this whole chapter is just going to call that right out of us and say exactly what it is. This goes in the wrong pile. This goes in the sin pile. It's not life in the spirit, it's flesh. And so when we feel that other people are deserving of punishment, boy, we don't want to see God give mercy. It's what Jonah feared. Look at the text. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? Isn't this why I didn't go in the first place? Oh, what? Clarity. Clarity for chapter one. What was it that motivated Jonah to not want to go to Nineveh? What was it that sent him the opposite? You know, God said, get up, go. And he's like, get down, hide. That's what he did. And, and you think about how Jonah did this. <laughs> I was even in key. You think about this. What was it that made him do what he did? This right here. Isn't this what I thought? Verse two, while I was still in my own country, he says, this is what I knew you would do. Notice the things he doesn't like about God in this sentence. I fled because I knew you're gracious, I knew you're compassionate, I knew you were slow to anger, I knew you abounded in faithful love. Doggone you, God! <laughs> Why do you have to be so good to everyone? <laughs> My son's laughing at me. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how we react to God? He relents from sending disaster. He's so overwhelmingly good, we just can't stand it. And not the way it's like, I just can't stand it. It's like, it's not like you want to squeeze your kitten because you just can't stand the cuteness. You can't stand God for his goodness because he's giving it to somebody else. Because you see it as being unfair. 
Do we find the love and forgiveness of God to be frustrating in the lives of other people around us because we consider them less deserving than ourselves? I think this is a real question we have to ask. I hope that many of us are like, no, I'm pretty good with God always showing grace. I think there are some, I really do believe there are some genuinely nice people out there. But for me, I'm working towards it. And, and I struggle with this because a lot of times I look at people and I want to see God bring justice. I don't want to see God show forgiveness. Would God have been perfectly just knowing, especially what we know? I mean, just look at some reliefs of um, you know different artistic impressions from Nineveh, what the Assyrians used to do. It's disgusting. So I'm not saying that, that there isn't room here for God to judge. But does that make us right for wishing it to be so? Do we want to see people repent or do we want to see them be punished? Because the heart of God is to save. The heart of God is to show grace. And that's his call to make. That's his decision to make. It's our job to be on board with it. But it's his choice. If you, if you have your Bible in front of you, I hope you do. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read an extensive section here, and I'm just I'm reading it for context because I, I don't I have a, a thing about parables being taken out of context. But in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, I want to read this parable to you, and we're going to highlight just the bottom part of it, but it's worth going through the parable to really tie in the connection between this and Jonah chapter 4. And so I'm going to read this, and you can follow along. Um, you can pull out that device. If you're watching on your device, I'll read it for you. But hopefully you have your Bible or something in front of you. It says this. Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one Daenerys, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard. I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. Verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers, give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five came, they each received one Daenerys. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a Daenerys each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on the Daenerys? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Notice verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the, the last will be first, and the first last. You contextualize this and who Jesus is talking to. Very easy to see. God's people, the Jews being frustrated that God was bringing in Gentiles in the latter times. But I think that we see a, a picture here that really... Um, adds a little more color to what Jonah's talking about in chapter 4 because that last part is what Jonah's feeling. He's jealous because God is being generous. Jealousy because of God's generosity. This is something I want us to all walk away from this text with. 
I cannot become jealous when God is generous. It's not my say. It's not my job to be judge, jury, and executioner. It's my job to reflect him. And I have to stay focused on what he's put me here to do and not be concerned about what he's doing in the lives of others to create jealousy within me. Now, I'm to encourage them. I'm to build them up. Obviously, I'm talking about this in context of, of our subject matter. But when you think about the things that will upset us, the things that bother us about other people, I think we all struggle with this to some extent, of God being generous to people and showing them grace when we just want them to whack them. I hit my knuckle on my ring just now. <laughs> if I tear up, you'll know why. But you guys understand the point. Like, that is the point of it. As the workers in the vineyard would say from Jesus' parable, don't we deserve more because we've been working longer? The generosity of God is something to rejoice over. The generosity of God is something to rejoice over just as much when it's towards others as when it's towards us. When we get angered by his generosity towards other people, we're forgetting his generosity towards us. We're focusing on what he's done for them, and we're not looking at how much he's done for us and thanking him for that. Think about when you get caught up in what God's doing for other people, if that doesn't direct you towards thankfulness, then our heart's in the wrong. If we see God working in someone's life, we're like, wow, the Lord has really blessed them. If we're not rejoicing for that, then my heart is wrong. You know, well, they don't have the same theology that I do, so they don't deserve to be blessed. It's garbage. We should rejoice when people are blessed by the Lord. When we get angered by his generosity, we have the problem. The forgiveness of God should be a cause for us to praise. And when we don't celebrate his nature and who he is, we misunderstand and we're, we're in sin. We cannot misunderstand him. And, and we need to learn to celebrate his nature more and more and celebrate his character. We should celebrate that God is love, not be like Jonah in verse 3 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, take my life from me. It's not worth living if this is the kind of God you're going to be. Ooh. I mean, it's funny because you think about it, you're like, Jonah, you're going to have to go face him. <laughs> you have to go face him eventually. We can get into Old Testament theology sometime, but eventually he's going to have to face God with this attitude, right? And God's talking to him right now, but like, Jonah, leaving this life doesn't really change. This is just someone who's really frustrated. This is someone who's expressing frustration. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Really echoing... Um, the attitude of Elijah, and we'll see it again as Jonah will say this yet again in this chapter, but he'll echo that, that attitude of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 where he's like, you know what, just kill me, okay? Like, I did what you asked, Jezebel's after me, just kill me. You know, like, kill me now, I'm, I obviously am a horrible failure. It's like, oh man, it's not answering anything. Just because things aren't going your way or the situation looks bad doesn't mean that your life isn't worth living. Just because things aren't going the way you planned or that you wish they would doesn't mean that your life doesn't have purpose. Let God decide. Let God decide when it's time to take you home. Do everything that is in your power to be functional and to work heartily. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, everything that you're doing should be done unto the Lord. Do that until the Lord takes you home. We should never wish to be free of this life until he says so. And if you're feeling that way, that is sin, that's the enemy, and you need to get free of that. You need to have someone in your life that you can confess that to, that will pray for you. We will be there for you if you're in that place. 
If you're in that place, I am, I don't see any purpose in my life. I don't see the point of my life. Come meet with me. I'll talk to you about it. I'll show you what the Bible has to say about how precious your life is to the Lord. We should never have this, this place in our lives where we're telling God, just kill me now. Let God do it in his time. Let God take you home when your job is done. And think about what this kind of anger actually accomplishes. How much good is Jonah doing? How much profitability in his life is there with his attitude being in this place? God loves him. God's ministering to him. God is being so patient with him. If God was a hateful, vengeful God, would he take this kind of garbage from this little man? Smash him. Start with a new one. Like, if God was like that, that's what he'd do. I mean, if we were God, that's what we would do. Just squish. Start with a new one. Think about this. James 1, 19 through 20. This is a good visual for you to think about, Squish. James 1, 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Think about verse 20. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Right here, Jonah's anger and frustration are not accomplishing God's righteousness. Jonah's ultimatum, give me what I want or kill me, is foolish and childish. It's the equivalent of falling on the ground and kicking and screaming because you didn't get your way. It's Walmart kid stuff. We don't want to be like that. Okay? We don't want to be like that. I don't know if you've seen that play on Walmart, but I have. Okay, look at verse 4. And we recognize, sorry, just to, to clarify the Walmart kid reference. You understand that kids like that need to be led and guided and disciplined and taught better. We don't want to be like that in a relationship with God. We want to be mature. And maybe this is a call to maturity for us. But no matter what, we need to be growing out of that. We can't act like children anymore. We want to be men and women of God. And so God asked the important question in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? What a question. Is it right for you to be? We should ask ourselves this all the time. Next time you get frustrated. Is it right for me to be angry right now? There are some things we can be angry and not sin over. But how often are we experiencing inappropriate anger that does not work or accomplish the righteousness of God, as it says in James 1.20? How do I respond? How do we respond when the Holy Spirit asks us that question? Do you ever get that check? You get frustrated? God's like, oh, there. And you're like, no, I've earned this anger. I have the right to vent. We call it venting. Sometimes venting is good. It depends on the situation. Sometimes venting is an excuse to sin. It's an excuse to sin with our tongues. Read James chapter 3. It's a fire that's setting a forest ablaze. I just need to vent a little bit. Hold on a second. There's a difference between expressing your feelings and your pain and hurting people with that causing a problem with that. How great of a forest is set ablaze by such a small spark, James chapter 3 says. And so think about these things. How do I respond when the Lord says, is it right? Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have the self-control to pause in your anger and allow the Lord to inquire with that question? Is it right for me to be angry right now? God will ask this question again in a moment, but for now, Jonah doesn't answer. He doesn't give the Lord an answer. He will in a minute. But he doesn't give an answer now. He just relocates. You know, just like goes in a different direction. I don't know if he did the arm thing, but I imagined it. Verse 5, Jonah left the city. 
He found a place east of it. It's funny, I just pointed east. How about that? He, he went to a place east that was unintentional. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. When the Lord appointed a plant, or then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. I like have that highlight in my Bible. This was good. Jonah <laughs> beheld the plant and it was good, right? When, when dawn came the next day, I had no idea where that came from. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. Jonah's not going to say the same thing about this worm. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. Nor about the wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so, so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. What is the Lord doing here? This is an object lesson. He's giving him, him an object lesson to learn from. You know, if God did this for his prophets, he's given us his word. I still think God's doing this in some circumstances of our lives today. Do you ever think about how God's actually positioning us in circumstances in life to teach us lessons like this? You know, like you get through this situation. I've had these, these aha moments, you know, where you get through something that's really hard. And you're like, man, this is really difficult. And God's like, is it right for you? Oh, man. I, you realize that you're in one of those object lessons in that moment. You know, maybe it wasn't the little thing that grew up over the top, but maybe it was that appliance that broke. Maybe it was your wife wanting two more chairs times two because it was Mother's Day. I don't know what it was, but here, God will give you these opportunities to learn. I worked it in. He, he gives us these opportunities to learn from. Now, I think it's interesting that Jonah's shelter that he made for himself was inadequate. Did you notice that? Sometimes we get right to this little leafy thing that God provides and the worm that ate it and the scorching wind and Jonah's attitude. Don't miss this. Jonah, when he left the city, found a place. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what happened to the city. Jonah made a shelter for himself. Yet then in verse six, the Lord appoints a plant and it grows over to provide shade for his head. That's a shed is shade for his head. Provide shade for his head. He does this. Why? Because whatever Jonah made, it was not adequate. God provided a covering for him. Jonah's shelter was unable to protect him. I don't want to get too crazy into this, but doesn't that make you think of the Lord? Doesn't it make you think of Jesus? Mankind trying to build some covering for himself. God provides a better one that's actually adequate. Now, we can't take that too far because the worm's coming. Right? But, but think about what this teaches us. Man so often will try to provide for himself what he needs, yet what we need to do is rely on God to provide it. We need to look to God to provide it. And isn't it an amazing picture of his grace that God provided it without Jonah even asking? Even in his rebellion, you realize that we don't obey to get God to do things for us. We obey because we love him, and that's an accurate reflection of our love back for him as obedience. But God isn't waiting to love you or waiting to pour out blessing on you just because you're rebellious or not. That blows me away, and I think it's a lot of the reason why we struggle with God being generous. is because God will bless people because he is generous and loving, and we're like, they're not even doing the right thing, God. He's like, you focus on you. You focus on what God has you to do. I have to hear this all the time from my own heart. 
God provided a shelter that was able to protect him from the heat. Jonah's was inadequate. God's provision is the answer for human beings. Our own attempts at providing for ourselves will always be inadequate. Sometimes in that provision of God, here's the next level, peel the onion. We're going to go one layer deeper. Sometimes we fall in love with God's provision rather than him. Think about that. God will provide something and we fall in love and worship that thing instead of worshiping the God who gave it to us. Jonah was pleased with the plant. So much so that he wasn't turning to God. He was thankful for the plant, not for the God who gave the plant. Don't miss that picture. Don't miss that lesson. You could teach an entire Sunday school session on this. We must learn to love God, the provider of the good things, and not love the good things. Because they are objects. They can become idols. So Jonah was unable to provide his own shelter. Lesson number one, God provides our shelter. Next layer down. Jonah falls in love with this plant. And he's so stoked about this plant, he falls in love with the object rather than God himself. He's loving that thing, he's appreciating that thing. When the next day came, God's lesson takes another turn. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. You think he's going to love the worm? <laughs> God's teaching him something. He calls this worm out. Notice this. Did you notice this in this text? You can go back and look at it. How many times, and this is for your own study, how many times did God appoint something in this chapter? God appointed, God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. Notice it. Notice that God's hand is behind all of this, even the little worm that's about to destroy the shelter. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much he almost fainted, and he says the line, it's better for me to be dead than to be alive. Now he's next level angry at this point. He's next level angry because when God asks him the question that he asked him before, Jonah's going to fire back, which is scary stuff arguing with God. How does Jonah respond to adversity? It's clear, but inside of that question, how do we respond to adversity? What is our attitude? If we could have a, I don't know about you guys, but my parents say, you need an attitude check. I was like, well, you have a temperature gauge I can put in my mouth. You like measure me or something. Oh, yep. Your attitude's up to seven points right now. I don't know how that scale works, but if Jonah needs an attitude check and we really look at how he's responding to the adversity now that God has provided and now that God has taken away that provision, how do we respond when that covering is taken away by God? He's teaching him something. He's teaching us something. When you get down to the end of the bank account, you're like, we have two cents left. Two cents, God. Our covering is gone. The little vine is shriveled. The worm has done its job. There's a horrible wind blowing. I hate it here. I hate everything about this place, right? And God's like, is it right for you to be angry? If we had the right perspective, we would agree with C.S. Lewis when he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. God shouts in our pain, in our struggle, in our, our trials. If we could grab hold of that, 
we would recognize that some of the best prayer times of our lives are when we least want to do it. Some of the most intimate moments that you can spend with God are going to be in moments where you don't think you have time. Some of the times that God's speaking to me the loudest and going to absolutely unveil his loving grace and mercy and compassion on me is when I feel like I'm at the very bottom of the barrel. That's when God's going to shout. That's when God's going to make it clear. And if you are hitting the bottom right now, I want you to take a chance today. Do not delay this. This isn't out there in general, you know, atmosphere, just floating around. This is for you. If you are at the bottom, if you're at the end of your rope, whatever metaphor you want to use, if you are there right now, take time to pray today. God might shout to you right there in that pain, in that struggle, in that difficulty. Here, the voice of God speaks to Jonah in verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Notice God is very pointed. Jonah gets upset with God at the beginning part of the chapter. Now here again, he gets upset again. God says, let's be real specific here. Is it okay that you're upset about the plant that just died? Look at Jonah's reply. Yeah, it's right. I'm angry enough to die, God. (laughs) You know what's funny is we snicker. It's almost comical, but it's really not funny. We snicker because he's saying things that we thought. We're laughing because we've all been there and we're remembering how ridiculous we are. Like, I've never been that angry with God. Oh, yes, you have. Yes, you have. You just didn't say it out loud. But you thought it, didn't you? I know I have. How many of us complain that we weren't given the blue pill, red pill option, that, you know, that we weren't actually given a choice of matter. It's like, this is not what I signed up for, God. It was supposed to be smooth sailing. There wasn't supposed to be death. There wasn't supposed to be trial. There wasn't supposed to be poverty and hunger. Where did God say that? Where did God ever say, when you get saved, I'll do everything that you want me to do? He's never said that to any of us. And it's a really good thing. It's a really good thing he never did because we don't want God to do what I want. I need God to do what he wants. I need God to get his will done here on earth as it is in heaven because he knows what's best. He sees the whole thing. For the third time in this book, Jonah expresses his desire to die rather than have things opposed to his own will. It's not right for him to be angry about the plan. Think about Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. God's righteousness doesn't cease to apply when we look away from Jonah as well. It applies to us. It applies to our lives. He is God and we are not. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God does what he wishes to do. And that's good. God is good. God is love. If we trust him, if we really believe what scripture says about him, then we can rejoice when God does whatever he chooses. You look around and say, there's so much sin in this world. Entrust yourself to God. Why would you serve anything in this world when you recognize that that is the opposite of who he is? It's the opposite of his character. And so Jonah says to God, 
I do have a right to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. Let God be true and every man a liar. Jonah's not being truthful. He doesn't have a right. His anger, his anger is skewing his vision. And it's the perfect verbal depiction of James 1.20. Human anger is not accomplishing God's righteousness here. Jonah is being a fool. Have you ever been a fool? <laughs> it's a funny question to ask. Have you ever been a fool? You know, imagine like Mr. T asking you that. I would say this. We all have, absolutely. We all have failed. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short, Romans 3.23. But here's the really awesome part. What does God do when Jonah throws this in his face? I do have a right to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. We've had that attitude, and I think a lot of times we look back and we feel condemned for feeling that way towards God or being upset with God or, or experiencing those emotions. Look at God's grace and mercy. God responds to Jonah. No squish. He responds. Verse 10. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. God's going to teach him. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Make some quick observations and we'll wrap up here. Jonah and Nahum are the only books in the Bible that end with questions. The only two, two books in the Bible that end with a question. What's fascinating about that is both books are focused on the city of Nineveh. And here, in Jonah's prophecy, we're seeing God show mercy to Nineveh. In Nahum's prophecy, it's going to end with a question about God's coming punishment on that city that would be fulfilled later. I think that that's fascinating biblically. As we look at these questions be asked over this same city, I think it's fascinating to consider the open-ended ending of two books of the Bible regarding the same location that don't give us a lot of closure. I think it's just this indicator that we need to consider our own responses. We need to consider our responses to God's questions. And I believe that it's absolutely clear in those questions, as we look at the context, that God is giving us a choice. God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He still gives us a choice. Many of us are guilty of what God calls out in Jonah's life here. We're guilty of caring more for the plant, the things in this life, rather than the people. And so as we consider this question at the end of Jonah, I want us to really think about, do we value people more than possession? Do we value people more than we value the things we have or even value our own desires? God has given us the resources we have to bless people with, not to keep away from them. God has given us what he's given us to then give away to share and to bless others with. 
He has not given us these things so that we can hoard them and hide them. Many of, of you in the church in this season have been doing such an amazing job of this, of um, blessing people who need help, reaching out and blessing people, looking for ways to be of help. Right now, I mean, just a practical thing that we're doing, we have um, a gal who's in our, you know, connected to one of the families in our churches that are in our church that um, is, you know, holding on. She's supposed to have her baby in a little while, but the baby's trying to come early, so we're just providing meals for her. And people are stepping up and providing meals for her. We have another family that just had a little baby that we're providing meals for next week. And this is just practical ways of take what you have and give it. I promise you this, you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive Him. The more you give, the more He will bless. Because you're reflecting His heart, especially when we remember in Scripture, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. A giver who comes and just gives. Give in whatever way he has equipped you to do. In whatever way he's given. Just recognize this. Plants are not more important than people. We should not be thankful to God for things he's given us and hating our fellow human beings. God loves people. All people. Sinful Ninevites. Bratty Jonas. Punkish Mikes. He loves us all. And he's showing us all his grace and his mercy on a continual basis. There's a powerful challenge here to Jonah, even in the final words. What an odd way for him to end this, this, this book. When you think about, he's talking about animals. Why would he talk about the animals? You ever wonder that? Look at him and be like, why is he talking about like all these people? And then even there's animals there. Think about this. Do you care about the people? How about the animals? Do you care about them? The people should be more important, but think about this. If he couldn't feel compassion for Gentile people, he should at least feel sorry for the hungry livestock that were bellowing in their misery. Remember, they weren't given food or water either in their state as they came to this place of repentance. We learned that in chapter 3. And he's like, remember those animals crying out because they weren't being fed? I don't know if you've ever been around animals that weren't being fed or given water. They make a ruckus. And you think about this, that noise, the book ends without telling us how Jonah responds to this. But God's like, if you don't care about the people, how about the animals? If you don't care about the animals, how about this plant? You care about the plant. Why do you care about the animals? Why do you care about the people in the city? God's ratcheting up his importance level going, do you understand that these people matter more than what I gave to you? This plant to give you a covering that they are more precious in my sight and you, Jonah, are more precious in my sight than any possession that we are his possession, that he treasures. And the book ends without telling us whether Jonah even responded positively to the Lord's reprimand, and that is by design, because the question goes out to us, what do you value? What is precious to you? What do you give your time, your affection, your finances to? Are you a blessing to people? Are you prioritizing people? No piece of land should over arch your care for other people. No vehicle should. No house should. No possession. No iPhone should. I don't care what it is. Nothing should be more important that has been physically given to you over the human beings that have been put in your care. Church, we are responsible to take care of each other and to love each other more. That reflects our love of God. It's a practical way to show it. 
Jonah's selfish desires blind him to God's heart. Selfishness clouds our perspective. Jealousy in the face of God's generosity. James 4, verses 7 through 10 says this. Actually, reading from verse 6. God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is my desire for us. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God isn't telling you to be a grump all the time. What he's saying is this. If you are pridefully exalting yourself over other people, repent and let God lift you up. If you are in a place where you are serving self and loving possession and things over what God has told you to prioritize and love, then he says, get down and strip all of that away. All the joy that you currently have in that prideful state doesn't belong. Strip it all down to zero. Get humble, get low, get on your knees before the Lord, repent before him and let him build you back up again. Because here's what we know about God from the book of Jonah. He loves us even in our failure. He loves us even though we are miserable sinners that are jealous over what God is doing in the lives of others. He loves us right now when we're feeling that way. And he wants to break all of that flesh and sin off of us, bring us down to this humble position before him and build us right back on up again. Not in the pride, but in his holiness. This is part of maturity. This is part of cleansing. And this is part of the process that he has brought us all through. We have to start at the foot of the cross. We have to start in this place where we recognize that we need our Savior so desperately. And maybe, maybe everyone watching right now, I hope everyone watching is saved. If you're not saved, please consider this. That you are dead in trespasses and sin. And that Jesus died on the cross to save you. If you will believe in him, he will save you from your sin. You'll be a new creation. You'll be born again. Believers, here's the challenge for us. Let's come back to the cross fresh. Let's come back and remember Jesus fresh. Remember what he's done for you. And remember that that gives you his Holy Spirit empowering your life to love people like he loves them. We need the Spirit to empower us to love people like he loves them, even the ones who we don't think are deserving. Jonah needed to be filled with the Spirit. He was filled with selfishness. We have the benefit of looking at his story and seeing how that worked out, having that open-ended question asked to us as well. And so we, I challenge us to answer that question biblically, sourced in our faith. Let's pray together. Lord, as we just uh, go to a time of, of worship, and um, Lord, especially as we sing, God, I just ask that you would do something fresh, God, in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that this season that's coming to a close would bring on Lord, much like a harsh winter or heavy rains, we'll bring on a harvest, flowers that bloom, and I speak spiritually. Lord, all that we have gone through, both individually and collectively, 
Lord, they would bring forth growth. For us to realize that and to see that come to pass, we have to start right at the foot of the cross. So Lord, we worship you. We thank you for loving us even when we deserve to be squished, Lord. You don't do it because you are long-suffering. And God, I pray that we wouldn't be angered by the amazing compassion and grace, the abounding, faithful love that you give us and that you give to others. God, we rejoice over it. Help us to see people through your eyes.